How many of you have ever been afraid? When we look at the events surrounding the crucifixion of Jesus, I think it's really easy for us to fault the disciples for their fear. But when we think about it from the perspective of what was actually taking place, there had been a huge mob stirred to rage by the religious leaders. Jesus, who has enjoyed extreme popularity among the people for the better part of three, three and a half years, has been crucified as a common criminal, despite being completely innocent. Before this, the disciples have all run away when he's betrayed by Judas. Some of them sort of creep back in to see what's happening. Then Peter denies Jesus. They're scattered, just as Jesus said would take place. They're afraid, just as Jesus said would take place. They were not ready for all of the fear and threat and danger that they would face in following after Jesus. So like I said, it's easy for us to fault them for their response. And yet I think if we were honest, we recognize that had we been in their places, we probably would have had the same response. However, at the end of the book of Mark, you have a transition away from fear and trembling and all of these sorts of things to the fear not going away, but God helping these various groups of people that we see at the end of the book to overcome their fear and to do what he's calling them to do. So I think if we were to summarize this last little section of the book of Mark, it would be to follow Jesus despite your fear. We start with the women who are looking on the cross at the crucifixion. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less and Joseph, or Joseph and Salome. What was the significance of these women? These were women who had been with Jesus throughout his ministry. They were from the region of Galilee, and they had ministered to Jesus and his disciples in various ways. Now, I don't know all the specifics of what it was that they had done. Uh, it could be that when they were in the area, they provided food for them. It could be that they helped them out with any number of other things that just were practical, everyday helps. Some of the disciples were fishermen, so they had to know how to mend their nets. That doesn't mean they were good at mending their own clothes. And so that could have been one aspect of things that these women did to minister to Jesus and the disciples, uh, showing hospitality in various ways. Uh, obviously, we see from the book of Acts that Peter was married, so he presumably would have had his own house, but not all of them would have necessarily had places where they continued to be welcome, where they could have gone and had food and shelter and some of those basic things provided for. And so I think it's fascinating when we see this um, here at this last section of the book of Mark, because I think we tend to think it's Jesus and the 12 disciples, right? But in reality, it's Jesus and the one the disciple that Jesus loves is Jesus and the three, Peter, James, and John. It's Jesus and the twelve before Judas Iscariot betrays him. It is Jesus and some of the women along with the twelve disciples. And then there are others as well sort of listed along the way. So the reality is Jesus' immediate group of people that was with him was not just 13. It was somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 to 40, depending on where they were in particular regions in Jerusalem. Then, with the excitement and enthusiasm of the crowds, it seems that that number grew exponentially 
But then when the crowds turned against Jesus, it went back down to that core group. Uh, at the beginning of Acts 1, we see that that group is around 120 people. So it's grown again slightly, but we don't see the exponential growth again until the end of Acts chapter 2, when there's 5,000 and more added to the, the founding of the early church, and then several thousand more in the next few chapters, and then just this this tremendous amount of people that have trusted in Jesus by the time persecution comes to Jerusalem and they're scattered throughout the regions of Samaria and elsewhere. Here is a group of women who have been associated with Jesus, and we're going to see them again at the beginning of chapter 16. But the attention turns now in verses 42 through 46 to a man named Joseph. Evening had come. It was the preparation day before the Sabbath. Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council. They say, have we seen any instances, do we see any instances in the Bible of someone who is a prominent member of the religious leadership uh, coming to do something at night, potentially out of fear? Well, we see in John chapter 3, a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, came to Jesus by night said to him, Rabbi, we know you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these things unless God is with him. Nicodemus came by night. Presumably, he was not one of the ones shouting in favor to stir up the crowd to condemn Jesus, even though the rest of the council did. Also, this man, Joseph, same kind of idea. It says he was waiting for the kingdom of God. What does that mean? He was one who had presumably been baptized by John the Baptist in anticipation of the coming of God's kingdom. He had heard the message of Jesus. He was looking forward to what God had done. And it seems that he had not fully given up hope. Even if he didn't understand all the things that Jesus had said, he hadn't fully given up hope because it would have been very easy in this moment for him to say, Jesus is dead. If I go and do anything that associates me with Jesus, my life is on the line, or at the very least, my position in the council, my reputation, my ability to have influence among the people. It says he gathered up courage, went in before Pilate, and asked for the body of Jesus. It's a funny thing in our modern society. We seem to have the idea that if somebody really prominent gets saved, like a football player or a pop star or somebody like that, if that person gets saved, then that person will have this huge platform to be able to tell people about Jesus. And yet in this instance, Joseph is willing to risk whatever influence he has among the community because the right thing for him to do in this moment, he believes, is to go and see that Jesus is buried properly despite being crucified as a criminal and honored the right way, not just left to be thrown out somewhere. And in his desire to honor Jesus, God continues to unfold and fulfill his plan. Because if Joseph hadn't gone and put Jesus in the tomb, all of the stories that we have about the resurrection wouldn't have taken place the way that we're familiar with them, right? The stone wouldn't have been rolled away. The guard wouldn't have been posted that we see, I believe, in the book of Luke or Matthew. All of these events that follow after are in some way connected with Joseph, by God's grace, having the courage to overcome his fear 
and asked for the body of Jesus. He's not only asking for the body of Jesus in a way that could risk his position with the religious leaders, his colleagues, the people that he spent a lot of time, because if he's on the council, he spent a lot of time with them. This wasn't something that you showed up one day and they said, hey, have a seat on the council. This had been a long time coming that he had this position. He also is going before Pilate. The Romans were not excessively cruel like some of the other empires, the Assyrians and so forth, but they certainly were not friendly toward the Israelites. And so if you go and ask Pilate without being asked to come before Pilate, if you just go and demand an audience with Pilate and said, hey, can I have the body of that criminal that you just crucified? There's a real chance that that's not going to go well. And yet he does it anyway. Interestingly, Pilate doesn't, at least according to the record of the Gospels, doesn't have any strong objection to this happening. Why? Potentially because he realized that he had crucified Jesus, an innocent man. We saw that in the previous chapter. We see it from the other Gospels. And so to the extent that they want to honor one that he knows to be innocent, I don't think he has a problem with that. What's his question? Is he actually dead? Verse 44. Ascertaining from the centurion that Jesus was dead, and how did they do this? They go and they pierce Jesus' side with the spear, and it's clear that he's dead. The scripture had said not one of the bones of the Messiah would be broken, so instead of breaking his legs like they would commonly do, they pierce his side with the spear. They find out that he's dead, and so he grants the body to Joseph. Joseph accomplishes burial preparations, puts him in a new tomb, rolls a stone, probably not by himself, based on what we see in the next chapter, uh, verse 4, but arranges for a stone to be rolled across the entrance of the tomb. I think another thing that's easy for us to not see the significance of what takes place here is that Joseph, by dealing with the body of Jesus, would have made himself ceremonially unclean. What's next day? The Passover. Or, or rather the Sabbath. If the Sabbath is the next day, if it's the day before the Sabbath, then if he is doing something with the dead body, in all likelihood there's no way that he can become, uh, even if they really stretched the Old Testament regulations, there's probably no way that he can be considered ceremonially clean to be able to participate in the Sabbath. So he is not only potentially cutting himself off from his position on the council, potentially enraging Rome, He's definitely excluding himself from gathering and worshiping with God's people because this is so important for him to accomplish. Mary and Mary are looking on to see where Jesus is laid. So we see Joseph risking reputation, risking potentially his life or at least the disfavor of Rome and risking his opportunity to gather and observe the rituals that God had required of his people Israel, he cuts himself off from all those things because he's convinced that it's the right thing to do to ask for the body of Jesus and to honor him. But it's not just what Joseph does, but it's also what Mary and Mary and Salome do in chapter 16, verse 1. They're going to go anoint the body of Jesus. Again, they are going to go do something that would have potentially... Um, damage their reputation with their neighbors and the people around them. You're going to associate with that Jesus who just got crucified. We don't want anything to do with you. 
they're going to put themselves at some measure of personal risk because whether they knew it or not, they're going to arrive at the tomb and there would have been Roman soldiers posted there. So here's a group of three women coming to confront Roman guards who, again, were not overly cruel like some of the nations in history, but they certainly weren't. I mean, the reality is soldiers down throughout history are not generally the most polite people in the world, right? They're not generally the most well-behaved people in the world. There's exceptions, clearly, but to do what you have to do as a soldier, at the very least, even if you're the most well-behaved person in the world, even if you um, observe perfect manners and decorum and whatever else, there are a lot of soldier they were dangerous men that's the point i'm trying to make right and i'm not saying anything bad about soldiers i'm not saying that they're less in some way than people that i don't know are professors at a college or something i'm just saying what you have to do to prepare for war and go to war changes you in fundamental ways that at the very least gives you a capacity for being dangerous and some people embrace that to the extent that they become very dangerous, right? And here's these women coming up to this point where these soldiers would have been posted. Here, there's all sorts of questions, right? Who's going to roll away the stone? Who's going to make the guards go away? Who's going to actually let them in? But in faith they say, we are going to honor Jesus and anoint his body and go to the tomb, nonetheless. So very early, they come to the tomb at sunrise, who will roll away the stone? And it had been rolling away. And they see a young man sitting wearing a white robe and they're amazed as an angel. He says, don't be amazed. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene who's been crucified. He's risen. He's not here. Behold, here's the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Now, depending on your Bible translation, you might start to see paragraph markers and brackets starting in verse 9 and possibly another one in verse 20. This raises a question. Why are those brackets there? Here's my short attempt to answer it. I think the Gospel of Mark ends at verse 8. However, what then does that mean for verses 9 through 20? And here's sort of the why there's a question mark about verse 8 versus verses 9 to 20. And that's this. When, for example, like the King James Bible was translated, Erasmus and others had compiled um, various uh, texts, copies of the New Testament. And then those uh, compilations were used as the basis for the translation of the King James Bible. In the 400 and some years since that was translated, they have found earlier copies, as best we can tell, earlier copies of the New Testament. And those copies do not have these last 11 verses. How are we supposed to think about that? Well, there's two ways, not two ways. There's several ways to think about it. One is to take the attitude that a question mark about certain verses being part of a section of scripture means that we are questioning whether the Bible is true. That's not what I'm saying at all. 
The Bible is true. The Bible is God's word. The Bible is accurate in all that it says. And despite the fact that it has been copied for thousands of years in the case of the New Testament and in the case of the Old Testament, sections of it have been copied for probably in excess of five to 6,000 years. It is astonishing that there are so few sections where there's even a question mark about whether it was copied accurately. For sake of comparison, various other, like let's say, take some of the Greek philosophies. We have somewhere between two and 10 copies of some of their works. The New Testament, if you take everything from the smallest fragment that's a portion of a verse to complete copies of the entire New Testament, has tens of thousands of copies. So we'd look at the works of Socrates or Philo, whoever, and we'd say, no question they wrote it, that it's true. We don't, we don't get into huge arguments about whether it is actually written by them. We don't get into huge arguments about whether it was copied accurately. We just say, okay, yep, this is what they said. This is what they wrote. And then somehow we come to the Bible where there are thousands of copies of various sections of the New Testament or in the case of the Old Testament where you have people who trained their entire life to copy the scripture and had such a, a reverence for it and a precision with it that there were all of these systems established where they would count the number of letters and they would write the same number of letters on each line. They would have ceremonial cleansings between each section that they would write out. They would have new instruments to make sure that it was completely legible. Copying the Bible wasn't just for the Israelites. It wasn't just, uh, how do I put it? I'm just going to sit down and just sort of do this one night while I'm tired. This was like a whole day pursuit, a lifelong pursuit, very precise. And there are still a handful of places in the Old Testament where there's question marks about, did someone accidentally write this letter instead of this letter? But here's the thing. Our understanding of Scripture is not that this itself is the inspired word of God and any typo in this translation automatically means God has failed to communicate his word. The position of Orthodox Christianity is that what God originally wrote, what was originally recorded, is what is God's word and we have accurate copies preserved by God down through the generations. This is really important because um, there's an approach that says, well, we don't have to worry about all this because the Bible is full of contradictions anyway, so why do you care about verses 9 through 20? That is not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is the Bible is true. God, God spoke through men throughout history. They recorded God's word those original inspired uh, records have been accurately copied in a remarkable and astounding and nearly miraculous way down through the centuries. But because of the time that's elapsed between when that was given and where we are today, there are occasionally discrepancies in some of those copies. How many of you ever make a typo when you're texting someone? Can you still understand what the person was saying? A typo does not negate the truth or accuracy of what you're saying, right? Um, I teach an eighth grade Bible class. 
and there have been times in the past where they've tried to say certain words and they've misspelled them really badly, but I can usually still tell what word they're trying to say. So let's say you do have someone in the early church who's fleeing from persecution, let's say AD 250, and he's writing out a copy of the book of Mark. And because he's in a rush or whatever else, he comes to a quotation or a commentary or a note somebody has written in the margin and he says, you know what, I don't know, I don't, it's not like I have 15 copies to compare this to, I want to make sure this doesn't get lost, so I'm going to write it in there. So here's what probably happened, as best I can understand it, with the end of the book of Mark. An accurate statement by someone early in the church that was something like a marginal notation became incorporated into the flow of the text. The footnote became part of the book. Why do I say it's accurate? Because the next question is, is the Bible true or not true? Absolutely the Bible is true. The next question is, when we come to one of these disputed passages, what does it mean for important doctrines of Scripture? Because this is one of the next accusations that's leveled. If you go with one of these early manuscripts, and it has a shorter phrase or a different reading than one of the later manuscripts, you're taking away a key doctrine of Scripture. The blood of Jesus, the idea that we're saved by faith, the concept of how God's grace works, one of those sorts of things. And the reality is, God has communicated those truths about himself in a bunch of places in Scripture. Let me give you an illustration of this. Um, the Jehovah's Witnesses have taken and translated the Bible in what they call the New World Translation. And if I remember accurately, they have taken and they've translated John 1 to say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, this is like became a God. So they've changed the translation of that. Here's the funny thing. You can have a conversation with someone who has a corrupted translation of the New Testament and still point out that Jesus is God. Why? Because there are examples in the book of Revelation where Jesus receives worship. There are examples in the book of John where he says, I am. There's the fact that in John 8, he says, before Abraham was, I am, and the religious leaders go to stone him because for them that's blasphemy because he's claiming to be God. So it doesn't matter that John 1, and I haven't checked the most recent versions, maybe they changed that one too, but it doesn't matter that John 1, 1 gets mistranslated. The doctrine of Jesus as God is in a bunch of places in the New Testament. What does that have to do with any of the book of Mark? Let's look down through these verses. After he had risen early on the first day of the week, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene. Do we see that? Yes, we see it here. We see it in the other Gospels. She went and reported to those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping. Do we see that in other Gospels? Yes. When they heard that he was alive, they didn't believe. Do we see that in other Gospels? Yes. He appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along on their way to the country. The road to Emmaus account, right? We see that in extensive detail in the book of Luke. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven and he reproached them for their unbelief. Do we see that? Yes. Jesus confronts particularly Thomas for not believing that he was raised from the dead. And they didn't believe the people who first said, like, you know, Peter and John run to the tomb. We see that in the other gospels. But the rest of the disciples don't seem to believe until Jesus appears among them. What about verse 15, where it says, Go into the world, preach the gospel to all creation. Matthew 28, exact same idea. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. 
Verse 16, the first half, this idea of believing and then being baptized as a sign of that belief is clearly evident in Acts chapter 2 in the response of people to Peter's message. He who has disbelieved shall be condemned. John chapter 3. These signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name they will cast out demons. Jesus had given the disciples opportunity to do this when he sends them out. They will speak with new tongues. We see that in Acts chapter 2. They will pick up serpents. Deadly poison will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Paul picked up a snake and he didn't die. Other people, I don't have a direct passage about the drinking poison and not hurting them, but laying hands on the sick and they will recover. We see that again in the book of Acts. Verse 19, when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. We see that also at the beginning of the book of Acts. We see it in the other Gospels. They went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. All of what happens in the book of Acts confirms these words. And they promptly reported these instructions to Peter and his companions. And after that, Jesus himself sent through them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. Even that phrase, though it's more grandiose than the rest of this section, is true according to what we see in the rest of the New Testament. So the question is not... Are these things true in verses 9 through 20? The question is, did Mark record them as the end of his gospel? My argument would be no, and here's why. And if you say yes, I don't have a problem with that because they're clearly true with the rest of Scripture. Here's why I think Mark ended his gospel at verse 8. Mark has a, mm, how do I put it, a theme of Jesus saying, hey, Don't tell anybody who I am. Don't tell anybody who I am. Don't tell anybody who I am. And then he reveals himself. And then there's a trajectory of when people should be telling them, I'm with Jesus, I follow him. They don't. The disciples run away. Peter denies him. So the fact that the women would pause and not go do what he said right away matches perfectly what we've already seen in the book of Mark. That does create a problem, though, because the other three Gospels say they went and told the disciples. Here's the best way I would explain to reconcile that. They didn't immediately go and tell the other disciples. Or, as they went to tell the other disciples, they were afraid and not saying anything to anyone on the way. Either of those, I think, is legitimate possibilities of how it reconciles with the other three Gospel accounts. Jesus himself gives a parable of, here's someone who says, I'm not going to do the thing. And then he goes and does it. And one who said, I would do it, and then doesn't, which one is God happier with? The one who goes and does it, even if he didn't at first. And I think that's what we see happening here with the women. Why would they be afraid? Again, all these things that we've talked about, they're afraid because of the threat of the people, the threat, but they're not so afraid they're unwilling to do what is honoring to God and honoring to Jesus, the Messiah. Think about whose gospel this is, too. This is Mark's gospel. What's the trajectory of Mark's life? He goes out on the missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas, and then he runs back home, seemingly because he's afraid. What about Peter? Why does Peter deny Jesus? Because he's afraid. He doesn't want to be associated with Jesus in that moment. And so we have Peter, this loud, brash, in-your-face kind of guy, first one to jump out and do the thing, gets into arguments with Jesus all the time, and then he denies Jesus, and he's just ashamed and afraid and uncertain. Then, and we don't see it in Mark's gospel, but John says in John 21, Peter encounters Jesus. Jesus, 
three times asks him the question, do you love me, to correspond to the three denials that he gives at the end of the gospel accounts before Jesus' crucifixion. And Jesus restores Peter to fellowship. But it seems like there's still an element of fear. He comes to Acts chapter 1. They're meeting in this room, about 120 people, but they're not out and about preaching in the streets. They're just waiting for what Jesus said would happen. And three weeks go by, and then the day of Pentecost comes, and Peter is emboldened by the Holy Spirit to stand up and preach. And then the next chapter, they heal a lame man, and the religious leaders say, hey, you need to stop talking about Jesus. They say, we're not going to. And then they get thrown into jail again. And then later, Peter's thrown into jail again, expecting to be to death and God miraculously frees him from the jail and then he goes out of the area for a little while so there's this trajectory in Peter's life as well Mark's probably having conversations with Peter to compile the gospel account at this point in Peter's life what's his attitude it's not confidence and boldness it's fear and being more tentative and being more uncertain so I think that this gospel ends at verse 8 But the rest of the things that are contained in the chapter are true according to the rest of Scripture. What then does that have to do with us? Why why did I say that I think the point of this section is follow Jesus despite your fear? Because when it comes to doing the things that God has called us to do, we have the same sorts of questions that Joseph and these women did. If I do the thing that God wants me to do, will it be hard? Will it cost me? What will people say? What is the worst case scenario for how this is going to turn out? Let me start with what that looks like collectively for us as a church. We've been having all these conversations about um, what we're trying to make decisions on about things with our building. If we conceive of those decisions in a way that is things have to be predictable, things have to be safe, things have to be comfortable, things have to be familiar. We're not showing the boldness despite fear that Joseph and the three women show in this passage. Because the reality is that following God is rarely safe, predictable, easy, and familiar, and comfortable. There was a long stretch in the history of the church, broadly speaking, in the United States, in which we were, I think, overly concerned with whether or not we have lots of people coming to church. And so we kind of toned down the gospel message from what the Bible presents it as. The Bible presents it as, here is great hope. You are a sinner who's turned away from God. Jesus pays for your sin, and if you believe in him, God will forgive you. But we wanted to kind of tone down the part that comes next, which is, and life will be hard if you follow Jesus because you have to say no to temptation. People at different points aren't going to like you for following Jesus, but it is worth it because after this brief period of persecution and difficulty comes the glory of eternity in God's presence. What we've tended to do for the last 50 or 60 years, quite honestly, maybe longer than that, is to say things like, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Believe in Jesus so you don't go to hell. And then not say anything more than that. 
Jesus doesn't save you just so you don't go to hell. Jesus saves you so that you will live for him and be changed to be like him and become more and more like the God you claim to love. If as a parent, you look at your child and there's all these things you're trying to teach your child and they want nothing to do with being like you, you don't have a very good relationship with them, right? In the same way, if we view our relationship with God as, hey, I signed the paperwork, leave me alone. That's not a relationship. That's at best some kind of a business transaction and God doesn't, you can't bargain with God. So what God is calling us to do is to follow him even though we're going to be afraid, to follow him even though there's going to be people who don't like the fact that we're following him, to follow him even though we don't know the future and what's going to happen next if we do the things that are pleasing to him. Let me take it to another subject we've been talking about a lot lately, which is the subject of evangelism and reaching out to people who don't know Jesus. Probably the number one obstacle that people would give for why I don't talk to someone about Jesus is... I'm afraid of what they're going to say or do in response. We want to be liked. We want everybody to be our friend. We don't want there to be any impact on our security of our job, on uh, the condition of our house, on the familiarity we have with family members. And so you can take this too far, right? Because you can have a family member who has said, I don't want to hear about Jesus. And there can be moments when you really should pray for that person and not just say, trust Jesus, trust Jesus, trust Jesus, trust Jesus. Because ultimately it's not you saying that phrase over and over that's going to save that person. It's the Holy Spirit changing their heart. So there are moments when we need to pray instead of just say the things we've already said over and over. But there's a lot of moments when we don't clearly say, here's something true about God that God can use in the course of bringing someone to salvation because we're afraid that it's going to cause a rift in that relationship with a family member or a friend or a coworker. And work is tricky, right? You're supposed to be doing your job. You're not primarily getting, you're not at all being paid to be there to witness to people about Jesus. But if you never witness to people you're around, then God's put you around them for a reason. I think you ought to take that opportunity. So it takes wisdom to figure that out, right? So take your lunch break, your afternoon break, your morning break, whatever. Talk to people during those moments. Do your work the time you're supposed to be doing your work. And yet, talk to them about Jesus. We say, well, but if, I, if people know that I'm a Christian, they're going to have higher expectations for me. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we should fully embrace that. And at the end of it, it's kind of funny. People who don't know and follow Jesus, their expectations usually are not about things that Christians tend to be hung up on. I'm not saying those things have no significance, but I remember when I was a kid, people were really worried about whether you ever went and saw a movie because they were like, if you go and see a movie, you're going to see your unsaved neighbor at the movie and he's going to think you don't love God because you went and saw a movie. I have never met a lost person that said, you went to a movie theater, that's my reason, I'm going to reject Christianity. I have met a lot of people who said, hey, you know what? Christians tend to be hypocrites and gossip and not be very kind. 
That's a fair criticism because to the extent that that's true in our lives, that is a reason people wouldn't want to have anything to do with the church or with following Jesus. So sometimes the things that we're really worried about aren't the things that we should be worried about. And at the end of it, even if someone rejects you because when you're doing everything right, what is Peter? Mark talked to Peter to write this gospel. What does Peter say in his epistles, his letters? If you suffer for the sake of doing right, you're following in the footsteps of Jesus. Don't worry about it. God will sort it all out in the end, and you have nothing to be afraid of. Here's what I guess I'm trying to say. We can follow Jesus despite our fear when we recognize that we don't have to know the future. We don't have to avoid all obstacles. We don't ultimately have to make it out of us alive because the reality is sooner or later all of us are going to die. So if our goal is, I don't want to die, that's a foolish goal because unless Jesus comes back first, every one of us is going to die. If our goal is, I don't want somebody to not be my friend, you go long enough in life, you realize you're going to lose friends along the way. He's like, I don't want to have a problem with this family member. You can try to be doing everything right and still have a family member that for whatever reason one day wakes up and is like, I don't like you at all and I want nothing to do with you. So to the extent that we're overly worried about all of these sorts of things that we can't control, that it makes us not do the things that God has clearly told us to do, we've got to set aside that way of thinking and saying, if God is, as we were looking at in the Sunday school hour, if God's presence is with me, then that means there is authority and power behind what he's calling me to do. If God's promises are true and he said, do this and I will work, then we should do this and he will work. Fear is a real thing. But if God is God, and if Satan's best attempt to destroy God's plan failed because Jesus rose from the dead, what do you and I have to be afraid of? What do we have to be afraid of? Death? If you believed in Jesus, then you get to spend eternity with God a little quicker. Being mocked? That happens sometimes even when you're not looking for it, let alone when you're doing the right thing. Having less money? Because you're not getting promoted? Because you're living your, wife in, your life in a particular way? What are you going to do with money in eternity? There's so many things that we can be afraid of losing in our culture and our society. Respect, wealth, even life itself. And we try so hard to hang on to all those things. In this passage, we see some people. One who had a lot to lose. A few who seemingly had less to lose, but still not nothing overcome their fear by God's grace to honor the Messiah and have the opportunity to be the occasion of the spot where his miraculous resurrection takes place on the part of Joseph and to actually witness it on the part of these women. So the question for us is, are we going to be like them? Or are we going to hide away in fear because we don't really believe that God is powerful. We don't really believe that God keeps his promises. We don't really believe that God has work for us to do. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for the challenge from this passage. Not that we will have no fear, but that your love at work in us overcomes that fear. And we can set out in faith to do what you've called us to do and have the privilege of being part of all the things you're unfolding in the world. Help us to see that that's worth it and help us by your grace to overcome the fear that so often drives our decisions. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.